First Timothy chapter 3. The first seven verses here. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We're returning this morning to the scriptural guidelines that are critically important for the church to follow if it's to have spiritual prosperity and the Lord's blessing. These days there are many churches that are just hanging on as social clubs or for tradition's sake. Many are spiritually atrophied, weak and ungodly, and have lost the flavor of the true gospel and the flavor of holiness. Others are gaining numbers of people, but they are starving spiritually, not advancing towards God's goals or with God's methods, largely because their leadership is bankrupt of these qualifications and negligent in their duties. Consequently, the precious souls of some or many will endure a lost eternity. Churches always decline when they choose leaders who are not qualified. We, being a church, have to take these qualifications for elder to heart because the gospel, our very souls, the lives of our little ones, and the good of the church is at stake. If we do not heed this word, we're going to come into a sad state also. And that's the warning side, yes, but on the other side, we have to see that the Lord Jesus is requiring these things of a man who would be elder because he loves his church. The Lord's intent is to give men as gifts to his church, to be her teachers and shepherds and evangelists. Knowing his love for us is going to be what ultimately moves us to look for qualified men and not to even countenance someone who is not. So we're going to look, as we did last week, at the qualifications of a man's character and then at the qualifications for his relationships. A man must have a character that is above reproach, a character that is above reproach. Verses 2 and 3, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Well, last time we talked about this, we talked about hospitality and ended there. Now we must recognize a man who is able to teach. An elder is going to have many times when it's necessary to teach. 
That's true, not just for the teaching elder, the minister, it's also true for ruling elders. They must sometimes take the pulpit and teach classes, but more than that, they're involved in the everyday discipleship of the flock. Teaching will happen in the way they comfort and visit the sick, in their evangelism, and in the conversations of exhortation that they'll have inside and outside the church. Now, we have to be careful with this qualification because it doesn't mean that a man has to be a gifted teacher. There are many gifted teachers out there in the world. The best professors and high school teachers in the schools, those are the gifted ones, and students flock to them. Wouldn't it be nice if every elder were an exceptionally good teacher? But that's not what God is saying. He certainly would not want his church to pick a gifted person who was otherwise unqualified. A gifted but disobedient man would devour the flock. So this qualification means he can and will teach and that he himself has to be teachable. Teaching is important to the Christian faith because this faith is not based on mysticism or superstition. We are not guardians of myth but of the truth. The elder, therefore, must be a man trained in the scriptures so that he knows the truth. And then he has to show a sufficient skill and desire to teach others. By teaching, what happens is that the elders progressively bring God's flock out of ignorance and deeper into the truth. That's how they feed the flock. Just like Christ, the good shepherd, makes his flock lie down in green pastures, how he prepares a table before them in the presence of enemies, yet still uh, the elder or the under-shepherd working for Christ feeds God's people the doctrine that leads to life and nourishes their souls with the exhortations and the warnings and comforts of Scripture. I think examining a man for his aptitude to teach is a little bit like testing a cook to see if his ingredients are wholesome and good for the body and whether his food tastes good. Truth tastes good to those who have spiritual life and it tantalizes those who, though they might not have the life yet, uh, God is slowly calling effectually to himself. As with food, the presentation also counts. People need to know if this old book can speak to modern man, whether its claims of value and truth and ethics are right, in distinction to those who are offering psychology and self-help instead. And so feeding the flock requires food that is wholesome and well-presented. An elder's ignorance, on the other hand, will imperil the flock And so we need to choose men who are trained and able to teach. Now the next qualification, I should say qualifications, they all have to do with how an elder's judgment must not be impaired. Starting with verse 3, not a drunkard. This Greek word actually has the word wine in it. Uh, He must not be given too much wine. That's the King James. uh, Another way of saying that is overly fond of wine. 
The biblical standard for elders is not complete abstinence. It's that they cannot be intoxicated or mastered by drink. That's God's standard for all Christians too. So the elder, although he may drink sometimes, must not ever come under the control of the drink. Moreover, he can't be addicted to it, as in thinking about where his next drink is coming from. Again, wine can make the heart of man glad, but the elder must be ruler of all his desires, not mastered by them. The next qualification is that he must be not violent, but gentle. Sometimes people would take gentleness as a sign of weakness, but this word has no weakness in it. A man can be as courageous and firm and at times bold as he needs to be, but not in a violent way, in a gentle or a considerate way. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And a man shows gentleness when God's work in him has brought him some maturity to the point where everything isn't a fight in the making for him. He can hold his convictions without compromise while being considerate of even his opponents. The violence that Paul was warning against is a pugnacious character, which is someone who's disposed to fight. And the elder cannot deal first with his fists and then ask questions later. And that gets us to the next qualification in verse 3, which is not quarrelsome. And the quarrel is the verbal fight. Some people just like to be contentious. They like to disagree and they get a rush out of having an argument. If you see it in a man, he's not fit for office. Now all of these three, not given to wine, not violent, and not quarrelsome, all speak of the same kind of character problem, which is having impaired judgment. That would be the result of these character issues. Too much drink impairs judgment. Violence is the result of anger, which itself impairs judgment. And quarrelsomeness is either related to anger or an unhealthy mind. Anger is a strong drug. It makes people lose their minds and say and do all kinds of things that they'll regret later. Quarrelsomeness is one of anger's cousins, and it's the child of pride. It should go without saying that an elder doesn't use his fists to make his points. The Lord Jesus never did. And when it comes to quarrels, Paul talks in chapter 6 of this book about the false teachers who had an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. They had a craving to quarrel that suggested a diseased mind, really a problem with the heart, and that's always getting geared up for the next argument. A man who can't accept another person's views uh, and only countenances his own will divide the church. It's a sinful flaw in the man and maybe a personality flaw if he just won't get along with others but carps at them and has a censorious attitude about things that are indifferent, about things that Christians have some liberty with and don't all agree about. If he censors everybody, he'll damage relationships unnecessarily. And an elder, like all Christians, needs to build up the church and bring about its peace and unity. These are important characteristics because elders have to have clear spiritual vision. 
Proverbs 31 includes some exhortation to the king not to drink, lest he forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. That applies to elders, doesn't it, who rule in Christ's kingdom. And since their decisions will hurt or bless the flock, their perceptions and their discernment has to be clear, unimpaired. Their mouths must judge rightly, for they open their mouths for the mute. It's their job to defend the rights of the poor. Drink, anger, and a quarrelsome spirit are mind-altering. They'll hinder righteous judgments. And as we know, the God we serve has wise and right judgments. And so, his elders must be too. Now, the next qualification might also fall under the genus of judgment-impairing problems, but this time for a different reason. This time more obviously because the problem is in one who has a heart focus that is far from God, even the heart of idolatry. It says he must not be a lover of money. You instantly think of Judas, don't you? There he was three years with James and Peter and John, He heard the same teaching that they did, and he was even given power to cast out demons and to do miracles, to heal the sick, and yet there was a greater love in his heart than the Lord. There was an idol that ruled him, an idol he was not willing to part with, not even if God should come down and die for him and teach him how to be saved. Judas loved money, and he kept the purse. And he used to take what was put into it for himself. He begrudged giving to the poor because he wanted it for himself. And finally, he betrayed the Lord for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Not even a very large sum. He discounted God and God's things so much that he couldn't even put a high price on them. He basically said, yeah, I know what's valuable in life. It's silver, not righteousness, not forgiveness. If someone were to look at your credit card statement or your checking account statement, would they see that you give regularly to the church and through the church or maybe alongside it to ministries of mercy and missions? Would you elect an elder who is not steadfast in giving at least a tenth of his income to God's work? Paul writes in chapter 5 that love of money is a root of every kind of evil. These days, as I think you know, some pastors betray a shameless love of money. And if you get an elder like that, watch out. You'll introduce many evils into the life of the church. So a man who has learned to suppress and control a love of money is showing that his heart is really filled with heavenly desires. The Lord has much to say about money in the word, because money is such a hindrance to becoming a Christian in the first place, and after that it's a hindrance to discipleship. It's a hindrance to faithfulness and worship. It's an obstacle to the things of the Lord. The Lord taught his disciples to lay up treasure in heaven. He said, the, said to the money lover, the rich young ruler, he said to him, give it all away and come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. What you're looking for, when you're looking for an elder, is a man who can and does say no to this world, and yes to heaven. 
Well, how does a church determine a man's character if character is so important? The answer is that he must be tested. Paul's word is in verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Sometimes the test is just observing his life with God's people. And I should say the test really ought to be that. He should have a rapport through years of service and life with God's people. For the most part, people can't conceal who they really are. In chapter 5, Paul says the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So you can't hide. And so a man must not be a novice. He must show that he really values what God values. If a man were propelled into a position of teaching and ruling while he was a new Christian, it would be possible that he would be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation that the devil fell into. I think that's serious. What could be more serious? So it's not only that a new convert thrust into the eldership will harm the church, he'll harm himself. See, it's, it's spiritual age that counts. Think of a tree. You might build a tree house for your children in a strong, mature tree because you know it won't break, but you wouldn't build it in a sapling that would snap. The elder will have to bear the weight of God's people because they're precious to God and he needs to have some spiritual strength. He needs to put down strong roots and bear fruit for a few seasons before bearing the weight. Trees will be pummeled by the wind. And an elder is going to be buffeted with many cares and temptations. This is not saying an elder has to be perfect, but he has to have enough seasons under his belt to reveal his integrity for the office. And as he matures, his humility and his gifts are going to be apparent, and the church will know this man is a good choice. So that's what you look for. By the way, young men, aspire to these things. Try to have these qualities in your life. And young women, if you were to marry, what kind of man would you look for? For a man who has these kinds of qualities. If a man has them, and he's called to a congregation, he'll serve under the knowledge that God has sent him, and the congregation will receive his leadership, knowing also that God has sent him, and the whole church will prosper with God's blessing. So never let a man destroy himself or Christ's church just because he's zealous and eager. Well, that brings us then to an elder's qualifications in the matter of relationships. And for these also, an elder must be above reproach in life's relationships. And we're going to go back to verse 2 where it says an overseer must be the husband of one wife. What is this saying? Well, you can think about how important this might be, for example, over in South Sudan, where the cultural normative is for men to accumulate wives practicing polygamy. So it was in Greek culture when this was written. Paul is instructing Timothy that in choosing elders, while a polygamist could become a Christian and come into the church, he could not hold the office of an elder. 
And now just because I brought up the unbelieving polygamist being converted, that situation doesn't mean I can say exactly how the church has to sort that out. The church historically has had to sort it out. And there's a lag time between conversions from pagan polygamist culture uh, until life starts to normalize according to scriptural standards. In Comanche culture, when Reverend Carithers was ministering down there in Oklahoma over a hundred years ago, the church's solution was that men who became believers who had more than one wife were expected to put away the subsequent wives and keep the one while making sure all the others were provided for. So they still recognized an obligation to care for them while trying to be faithful to Scripture. Maybe that's the way. But the Bible's ideal is to have it to where all men have just one wife, all married men. Such must be the elder. He has to be a one-woman man, setting the example for the flock and the future generations. Now, This regulation also speaks about marriage and divorce. It doesn't mean that only married men can be elders, and all elders must be married. Paul himself would have been disqualified if that were true, and you can recall that the apostles were also elders. So this is not a a positive kind of requirement in that way. If it were, then also the married man with no children couldn't be an elder, because verse 4 speaks of his children, and it would also rule out the widower. These rules aren't saying he has to be married with children. They say if he's married, what his married life must be like, and if he has children, what his governing of them must be like. So what about marriage? Well, an elder can't be someone who sinfully changes wives, getting tired of one, seeing another one, divorcing the old to get the new, and so on. So he has to show marital fidelity. And what about divorce? Well, some people have read this as meaning that if a man were ever divorced, he could not be an elder. But the problem with that is that it places a stricter standard on the would-be elder than the Bible places on anybody. After all, a man could have been divorced through no fault of his own. The issue that the examining body has to uncover is, of the two people in the marriage, who was the guilty party? There are legitimate grounds for divorce. I think you know them, adultery and abandonment. So if a husband abandons his wife, you would not hold the wife as the guilty party. Likewise, if a wife commits adultery and runs off with a lover, then divorces her husband, he's not guilty. And therefore, there's nothing disqualifying him from office. And if she does these sins that he tries to win her back, and he ends up divorcing her because she won't come back, he still isn't guilty because he has legitimate grounds. What you're trying to prevent is bringing a man into the eldership who's guilty of initiating a divorce without just grounds, or when he could have preserved a marriage but failed to do it, or who destroyed his marriage with sinful adultery or abandonment, or forced his wife to resort to divorce. The Lord's faithful to his covenants. You want a man who is faithful, who's not guilty of breaking the marriage covenant. Similarly, if a man's wife has died, the scripture says he's freed from her. Well, he may marry again in the Lord 
and qualify for office or remain single and qualify for office even if the next wife is his second wife. He's still a one-woman man. Next you get to the household and the children. He, verse 4, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, I'm sorry, I inserted well accidentally, how will he care for God's church? This qualification is saying that he has to demonstrate godly headship in his house because the church is God's house under Christ's headship. Paul wrote this letter so that one may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's chapter 3, verse 15. Skillful management in the house leads to skillful management in God's house, and a man faithful in a little will also be faithful in much. I believe what's being said by the word dignity is that the father has to have all dignity in keeping his children submissive. That means he doesn't lose his dignity in the way he handles his children. Now, sometimes fathers know that occasionally their children will do something that bring him some shame. That's the nature of being sinners, all of us. But it shouldn't be a regular thing. A man loses dignity if his parenting is extreme. If he's loud, jumps at his kids for their fault, loses his temper, spanks or scolds angrily in public, and makes a scene that's not dignified, and usually shows that he's bullying rather than parenting. On the other extreme, you get the passive dad. Sometimes fathers are are very caring Christians who are trying so hard to have quality conversations with people that they're oblivious to their children disobeying, being rude to the elderly people in the church, throwing fits, screaming, and so on. And so there he is. He's looking into your eyes and he's wanting to have a deep and meaningful conversation with you while the kids he's learned to ignore are causing a commotion that you can't ignore. Or else he leaves his wife to do the parenting while he's being spiritual, or worse yet, they both ignore the children in order to be talkers. What a distraction. Well, the scripture says his duties come before his conversations. He should parent well at home and at all times. That's the word manage in verse 4 and keeping his children submissive. And if he does that, he'll find that there is time for conversations with people who will respect him because he's not continually losing his dignity. Relevant to households, a man's also responsible for what his wife does. If she sins repeatedly, publicly, or gossips, or has any other problem that he doesn't correct or remedy, he shares her sins. A man could quite easily become known by his wife's behavior, because like it or not, he's the head. And also in connection with the family, some might say, well, If a man's grown children reject the Lord, he can't be an elder. But not necessarily so. It is a sad situation. But children become adults and they make their own choices. And if a man fathered well and in a godly way while his children were in the house, if they were to rebel when they got older, he is not guilty for their sins and doesn't lose his qualification. 
sometimes. However, the grown-up child can be a reflection of the household management in earlier years. Likewise, a man who was not a believer uh, when his children were young is not necessarily disqualified if they are not believers. It's going to take discernment for a church to know these things. Now, someone might say, Okay, I understand what's being said about the qualification, but I don't know the why yet. What's the connection between household management and church management, since after all, he's not a parent to the people? Someone else might say, yeah, but this man, though he lacks this qualification, is a genius of theology and preaching, and we need his skills, so let's not worry about the family. Well, the connection is that if he goes about yielding to his wife, and yielding to his children, letting them trample on his authority as husband and father, then he may know what his duties are towards the church, but he will not be able to do them. If the children exert pressure on him, or if his wife pressures him, and his technique for keeping peace is giving in to their demands, pacifying them, and giving what they want, Well, when the church pressures the elders, especially when it comes to the hard work of correcting sin or doctrinal error, and they receive pushback, if a man has been pushed back in the home, he'll buckle in the church, and he'll let sin and rebellion have its way, the same as he let sin and rebellion rule in the home. The particular sin is desiring too much to please people. To serve God, all of us must stop desiring to please people. We must stop seeking their applause, and we must fear the Lord. Well, who calls a man to office? Have you ever asked that question? Who calls? It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The church's job is only to recognize that God is calling the man. And the way to recognize it is in his spiritual qualifications. All this means that you you never just use the people that you've got. You never say, well, we don't have anyone else. This one's not qualified, but he's the best we've got, so we'll put him into office. That would be putting someone into office whom the Lord has not called. In choosing an elder, the providence that you look for is not one of location, as in this person is here and no one else is, And you never look at his willingness either, for false teachers are very willing. All kinds of mischief would come of that. We don't pick a man either because he's a founding member of the congregation or because he's a community figure, well-respected. What we're looking for in God's providence is a qualified man. And when we find him, then that's the signal that it's time to call him. The Lord gives these elders to his people Because he loves his people. And he loves his people so much that he gave himself to die in their place, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how precious each member is to him. And so the Lord would have us honor him by waiting, if necessary, for him to provide elders that will work for him. And as for those who are elders, none are perfected in holiness yet, all are sinners. But in Christ, that's not a reason for despair. It's a reason for prayer. 
We can pray for the leaders we have and trust that Christ will sanctify them and improve their graces. It's a very hopeful thing. And if God has given you these graces, if God has formed these gifts and characteristics in your life, if you have a godly character, and if your relationships have met the standard, then why should you resist God? Why should you leave your talent unused? What better king is there to serve than the Lord himself? How could worldly honor hold a candle to spiritual honor? The king you serve has been crowned with glory and honor, and he will come again prepared with a crown of life to give to all who are faithful to him. Therefore, some must heed this call. Let the men aspire after a noble work, And let us all strive for integrity of character. Let's pray.